You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner's last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 7, entitled Souls, Eternity, in the Light of Anthroposophy, given in Prague on the 27th of April, 1923. To speak from the perspective of anthroposophy means to face great opposition today, very understandably. Anthroposophy seeks to speak about life and reality in a way that appears to many nowadays as very far-fetched. Especially if we speak of a theme such as the one we will consider this evening, that of the immortality of the soul, weighty objections are raised by voices in scientific or academic circles, stating that such things are beyond the scope of our knowledge and should therefore not be discussed. These things, they say, must be left to the domain of faith, to human feeling that is not founded on direct cognition, for they are hidden from us, behind insuperable boundaries to our knowledge and inquiry. But anthroposophy holds that, on the contrary, we can speak of such matters in life, and can do so entirely in accordance with rigorous methods and with a scientific discipline fully aware of its responsibilities. The only difference is that anthroposophy must summon powers of inquiry, which, though they are certainly present in ordinary life and in ordinary science, exist there only germinally and need further development. We have to cultivate such development to delve into the spiritual realms of life from the standpoint of true inquiry, rather than from a nebulous mysticism. The starting point for this must be what I would call a union of intellectual humility on the one hand, with on the other an unmistakable trust in the possibility of perfecting human powers of cognition. In seeking to unite these two soul impulses, anthroposophy can investigate the supersensible realm, as we will call it, with the same degree of assurance as science today inquires so ably into physical existence with the aid of the human senses. What do I mean by intellectual humility in this context? As we know, our soul life began in a child's outlook, which is very comparable to a state of dreaming, or even in some respects to that of sleep. And in the same way that we wake up each morning from ordinary sleep, so we have awoken from our child's state of soul to capacities of cognition and perception as these figure in science and in practical life. If we adopt the stance of intellectual humility, we recognize that the powers we possessed in infancy were perfected by education and the influences of life and our surroundings as we grew up to the point of our present perspective on knowledge and life as adults. 
If we feel this with full intensity, then it will not be without intellectual humility, as long as we do not stop short there. During life we have achieved a perspective, which if we apply the right methods current today, we assume must enable us to accept or reject all kinds of things, and also determine what lies within the scope of our knowledge and what belongs only to the realm of faith or belief. By contrast, anthroposophy asserts that we may also be able to extend the soul powers and faculties we have acquired as adults in the same way that we developed our cognitive powers from the dreamy state of soul of the young child. Naturally, all will depend here on whether we do actually succeed in extending these powers further, and it is of such further development that I wish to speak this evening in relation to the immortality of the soul. Anthroposophy has full and intense trust in the fact that the powers of perception and cognition each person has so far developed can be increasingly perfected. In consequence, it dares to embark on this path of development, couching this in more or less the following terms. Today, through the magnificent achievements of the sciences, we have developed a certain concept of knowledge. But is this concept of knowledge really drawn from the full depths of life? It is certainly justified for everything that is sought within particular fields or disciplines. But does it draw on the full depths of life? Does it address questions of human existence that relate firstly to our profoundest human longings, secondly to all that composes a sense of our human dignity, and thirdly, to all that signifies and encapsulates the real meaning of life, our moral impulses. When it is a matter of gaining insight into these most intimate needs and questions, especially concerning the life of the soul, we often resort to certain seemingly marginal or peripheral phenomena in life. Before I address these questions in a more substantiated way, I want to offer an initial comparison by pointing to a dim and unlit realm of life which nevertheless poses many enigmas for us. We all know this realm well. It is that of dreaming, which we experience during sleep. I want to expressly state that I am not referring to dream and sleep here as a pointer to certain knowledge, but only as a point of departure for things I wish to discuss today. Let us first imagine, then, this manifold and colorful world of images that dream conjures before us. We can be sure that these dream pictures arise from the same depths of human life from which our daytime thoughts otherwise arise. But during waking life we are aware that when plunged in this extraordinarily interesting dream world of ours, we are concerned only with a reality that is relative in nature and that we can only understand by regarding it from the perspective of and by comparison to waking life. Let us assume for a moment that we dreamt our whole lives through and never had anything in our awareness except these colorful, manifold dream images. Could life, nevertheless, still unfold as it does? Let us assume that certain natural or spiritual powers enabled us to undertake our daily work 
without awaking consciousness, or even, though some in my audience may consider this misguided, to undertake scientific work. Let us assume we could accomplish such activities in a state of somnambulism, while within us we were aware only of the dream world. In such a case, the world around us would be entirely at odds with our sleeping, dreaming consciousness. If we imagine this and consider it fully, we can recognize that this dream world is one we never really know when we ourselves inhabit it. If, as I described, we were asleep and dreaming throughout life as we went about our work, we would feel this dream world to be our reality. The fact that we can regard dream as having only a secondary reality is due to the fact that we keep waking up, that by this sudden transition from sleeping to waking life we become conscious, to put it very roughly, rather than with any scientific accuracy. In this transition we incorporate something intrinsic to ourselves, our will nature in particular, into our physical body. A close examination of this fact will show that everything mediated to us by the senses in waking life depends very much on our engagement in real life, in the physical body, while we are awake. By incorporating our will into the physical body, we arrive at the outlook that allows us to distinguish the secondary level of reality of dream from the primary reality that the sense world represents for us in our waking consciousness. Awake we know that through the will incorporated in the body we are connected with an outer reality. I am speaking again, of course, not from any philosophical standpoint, but merely describing what we ordinarily experience in life. But now this question arises, is it possible that we could awaken a second time out of this ordinary waking life in the daytime to a higher level of reality? Could we experience a second transition by means of which we incorporate our life forces into a new element, just as we incorporate our will into the body when we awaken from dream to ordinary everyday consciousness? Of course, this is only a question, and answering it will depend entirely on whether we can embark upon a path that is first of all safe and assured, and secondly one that every human being can pursue by their own efforts. But if we succeed in attaining this second awakening, then it would give us a perspective enabling us to discern the reality of our ordinary waking life from a higher standpoint in the same way that we observe our dreams from a higher standpoint when we wake up each day. To bring about a second awakening, anthroposophy first addresses powers of the soul that are already present in ordinary life, but whose ordinary nature suggests that they are capable of being developed further. Now even philosophers acknowledge that our capacity of memory points in the direction of what I will call the more spiritual nature of the human soul. That, in other words, we cannot regard memory in the same way as those soul faculties that are directly bound up with impressions of the outer sense world. But let us avoid philosophical reflections for now, and keep in mind the role our ordinary, 
everyday experience of memory plays in our life. Through memory we can call up images of experiences we may have had many years ago. Depending on our inherent capacities, these images may be more vivid or more shadowy, but they stand before us. When we give ourselves up to ordinary sense observation and perception, what we picture has to be present before us, whereas what memory offers us is not present, may have happened a long time ago. Through our picturing capacities, we conjure from within ourselves something that once existed but no longer does, that can no longer exist in the present. By this means, we become aware of our ability to draw forth from within us powers of perception that embody or represent something not presently there. So the question is this. Is it possible to further develop soul faculties we have developed since childhood so that we enhance what underlies our powers of memory? Can we do this so that we now not only picture something that no longer exists, that did once exist at some point in our lifetime, but picture instead something that does not exist at all? At this point we would effect a transition into a higher reality, one from which ordinary life on earth appears like the world of dream by contrast to our waking consciousness. Anthroposophy attempts to develop what underlies the capacity of memory using this inner discipline to arrive at the second awakening I spoke of. In doing so, it turns to the human powers of thinking. These are, after all, what conjure forth pictures of what we have once experienced. Anthroposophic inquiry proceeds here by undertaking something with thoughts that is actually not done in the modern age. Modern thinking, and from a certain point of view rightly so, is more concerned with attention to the outer world. But allowing external impressions to act upon us, then processing these impressions by enumeration, measuring, weighing, and using thinking to combine them, is a passive form of thinking. One considered all the sounder for knowledge, the more passive it is, the more it surrenders itself to the information received from our outer senses and organs of perception. Anthroposophy turns to this thinking and seeks to develop it further. And by so doing, to avoid all fantastical conceptions, such as many philosophers entertain. For this purpose, easily surveyed thoughts, of no special significance, are placed at the center of ordinary awareness, and one then concentrates the soul entirely on these thoughts. We withdraw soul life entirely from outward impressions and outer life, trying to strengthen this soul life increasingly by focusing it upon one or a series of easily surveyed thoughts. In this process, something occurs that may take a longer or shorter time to appear, depending on each person's inner capacities and constitution. One person may take three months for it, while another may need many years. If you repeat these exercises in a rhythmical sequence, after a while, you begin to notice a change in your inner life, which I would like to compare with something in outward life. If you keep exercising a muscle, it grows stronger. 
In the same way, you feel your inner picturing and thinking capacity strengthening from this work of focusing upon an easily surveyed thought. And eventually you will feel how your whole thinking grows active, how real life, inner life in a true sense, enters and informs this thinking. Gradually you will feel the great difference that exists, a real difference and not just a figurative one, between dead, abstract thinking and the kind toward which we strive and through which we seek to cultivate inner life in the element of thinking. As I said, one has to start from a thought that can be surveyed clearly. The soul exercises I will describe today involve every step that is taken being observed in full conscious reflection, in the way that mathematicians trace the stages of their calculations, or geometers consciously derive one form from another, each form leading to another form and each calculation leading to the next. This consciousness of acting responsibly as an inquirer and producing reliable findings is one that the anthroposophic investigator experiences with as much stringency and discipline as a mathematician. It is essential to maintain such consciousness. Any self-suggestion, all subjective aspects, must therefore be excluded they cannot be avoided as long as we reflect upon random thoughts which have many resonances with life and often have a suggestive quality. But if we assemble thoughts that perhaps have no outward importance for us, such as in quotes, light wisdom, and concentrate our whole soul life upon them while remaining indifferent to their reality value, then our thinking capacity will strengthen. And by this means, though, as I said, it takes longer for some and less time for others, we come to know what it means to live in thinking. You see, gradually our higher aspect is released from the mundane aspect that, as we know, inhabits our physical body. Just as, inhabiting the physical body, we know that there is life in the movements of our legs, the motions of our hands, so we become aware, through such an exercise, that there is something real, alive, vital in the motions of my strengthened thought. To put it very roughly, we could say that through these phenomena of strength in thinking, by means of which we spiritually touch realities as we otherwise only physically touch with our fingers, we come to experience a higher human aspect. Gradually we find that we can detach the higher aspect in us, which we experience in such thinking from our physical being. And thus we arrive at an experience of our supersensible being as it lives between birth and death in earthly life. By raising ourselves to observation in our inner thought capacity, we become able to overcome the spatial realm by this means. We overcome the present moment altogether and come to experience in time. The second released aspect of our being we experience is something that we do not feel to exist within a spatial dimension, which is the dimension of the physical human being. We find that we experience this second aspect of ourselves as a being fluctuating in time, and what we discern here forms itself into a kind of tableau, which in a relatively short time 
enables us to survey our life on earth from the earliest infancy to the point at which we now are in life. There is a great difference between these two things, the life tableau and my memories. You might say that we can compose our life on earth so far from our memories of it. Using my faculty of memory, I can put together what I experienced, either more recently or longer ago. And if I make the effort to do so, and if I take time for this, I will then possess an overall memory picture of my earthly life thus far. And it might be that I am mistaken, that in surveying the rapidly unfolding panorama of my life, I have something that I could also have with the help of subconscious soul forces, which introduce into my mind something like a conscious memory picture. But gradually, you notice the great difference between what we compose in the memory and an inner life tableau of this kind, which in fact stands before us as a first supersensible knowledge, as self-knowledge, first of all. You see, if we compose all our experiences into a memory picture, we always only see, really, what has affected us from without, what has acted upon us in life. We see people, natural occurrences, outward things that have interested us. The life tableau is very different in this respect. Here we are far less concerned with what has come toward us externally, but attend instead to what has acted from within us. If I became acquainted with someone in my life, this life tableau will remind me far less of how he approached me, but rather of the longings within me to find something special or particular in him. If this life tableau shows me a natural phenomenon of some kind, its aspects of interest do not come so much to the fore as the inner impulses in me of sympathy or antipathy toward it. What appears before me in this life tableau is myself and how I conducted myself in response to what I experienced. You could say, to use a rough and ready comparison, that this memory tableau I have described relates to an ordinary memory like the embossed surface of a signet ring relates to the imprint in sealing wax. It is the negative in relation to the positive seal that we can compose through our ordinary memory faculty. Having in this way passed through the first stage of soul practice, we thus come to a true self-knowledge of our life so far, in which various nuances will mingle. In this memory tableau we see what helped us progress, as well as other things that hindered or hampered us or pushed us backward. We place ourselves with our human dignity and value into this memory tableau, and through the knowledge awoken in us through it, we acquire an idea of what we are only now, in relation to outward reality and sensory powers, entitled to call the ether of the world. This world ether lives only in a temporal realm, and now in a sense gives us a portion of what I have now described as the first form of the higher human being, loosened and released from the physical. But with this first step alone we have not yet achieved much. If we wish to get further, we must continue these soul exercises. 
The next exercises involve us applying our strongly activated inner will to banish these thoughts and pictures from our consciousness again. Having first used the will to establish them in our awareness and concentrate on them so as to strengthen our thinking and being. As I said, full conscious reflection must hold sway, as practiced by a mathematician. It has to be said, you see, that our whole life of soul is, in a certain respect, absorbed completely by the thoughts we place at the center of our awareness, and especially when thinking has become sufficiently alive by our own inner experience conjured before us in the mighty images of the life tableau. We are strongly swayed by what appears before our inner eye, EYE, in this way, as a picture intensified into vivid reality. A still greater power is needed, then, to banish such thoughts and pictures once more from our awareness than we would otherwise need to rid our mind of ordinary thoughts. We should try to acknowledge this honestly. When our senses fall silent, when also what we have perceived through the senses falls silent, when the interplay of thoughts falls silent, and thoughts and feelings are in a sense banished from our awareness, then we fall asleep. If thoughts do not stir and stimulate us, we do not have the strength to maintain our waking state. But if we have the strength of soul that is needed for what I described, then we also possess the strength to eradicate again the thoughts and pictures we have gained, which, as I described, enter us by virtue of an inwardly strengthened life. We have the strength to keep our whole mind free of thoughts and yet still to remain awake. Only to be awake but to think nothing is the second condition that must be sought. Waking consciousness empty of content. This waking but empty mind can be inwardly perceived but does not long remain so. Yet having managed to establish it, the second stage of spiritual discernment arrives. Then we are no longer aware, as was described above, of what lives in us ourselves, but the spiritual content of our environment penetrates this waking empty consciousness. The second person in us, who was first released from the physical corporeal person, as we became aware of ourselves over the course of our whole earthly life, will now not only be self-aware, but through this higher self-awareness apprehends a spirit world around them. Again something arises before our soul that appears far-fetched and alien to modern people but is nevertheless intrinsic to what I have called the second stage of spiritual knowledge, or inspiration. An exact inspiration occurs, and in general nothing I have here described should be mistaken for what is often called clairvoyance of a nebulous, mystical kind. If we are to use this term at all, we ought to speak only of exact clairvoyance, cultivated by the development of soul forces in the same way as mathematical thinking, which, after all, contains no outward reality, but only one formed inwardly, prior to its application to the sense world, 
as in procedures of measuring, enumeration, weighing, and so on. What we have first conceived in inner living thinking, modeled on pure mathematics, must be augmented by what I have described here. And through these spiritual labors, we come to findings and insights in the same way that we come to insights through measuring, counting, and weighing. What occurs is a state of soul that we do not know in the ordinary mind because we do not need it. I want to clarify this soul condition that occurs when we have achieved an empty waking awareness. Let us imagine for a moment that we are in a big modern city with all its hubbub and noise. We can't find peace or tranquility here. It distracts us and fills our awareness. But then we leave the city and the noise and hubbub slowly fade as we put more distance between ourselves and all its commotion. Let us now imagine that we leave the city far behind and enter the quietness of a wood. Here we reach a stillness and degree of quiet that we could call, in quotes, zero compared with the city's hubbub, silence around us, quiet within us. But now something else can happen, although such things are not observed in the ordinary course of life. For this we must resort to a second metaphor. As you know, if someone has a certain amount of capital, they can slowly spend it and their assets grow ever less. If they do not earn any more but go on spending, then they arrive at zero assets. And if they still continue to spend, then they incur debt. And thus they have less than nothing, less than zero. Mathematicians use negative numbers to represent this situation, minus sums. Now picture this. We have distanced ourselves from the noisy hubbub of the big city, but we continue to descend into stillness, quieter than quiet, and more silent than the zero point of silence. This is the soul condition that gradually arises as we pass through the empty and yet wakeful mind. Gradually we feel with great clarity what I would call the profound silence of the human soul. This deep silence is not only quietness, but more, or, if you prefer, less than quiet. It descends below the zero point of stillness. And if we really experience this deep silence of the soul, then the spiritual presences surrounding us emerge from it, and the full state of inspiration is present. By truly experiencing the silence of the soul, we become able to hear spiritually what dwells in the world of spirit. The ordinary sensory world then becomes a means for us to interpret what lives in the spiritual world. I want to speak very specifically of actual spiritual perception. From the soul's deep silence resounds something that strikes me thus. It stirs me. It approaches me with a certain vivacity. It can give me, say, something like the impression the color yellow gives me if I am sensitive and receptive to colors. Then I have something in the sense world through which I can express my experience in the world of spirit. My perception is one I can describe by saying that it affects me as the color yellow does, or like the tone C or C-sharp in music, or like warmth or cold. 
In brief, my sensory experiences offer me a means for expressing in ordinary words what appears to me in the world of spirit. In this way, the whole sensory world becomes like a language to express what I experience in the spiritual world. Those who seek too rapid progress do not understand this and therefore come only to a superficial judgment. Patient investigators encounter an experience that strikes them in the same way as the effect of a color on our sensibility. And this is why they describe their spiritual experiences in terms of colors, tones, and so on. Just as we should not confuse the word table with an actual table, so we should not confuse the world of spirit itself, which emerges for us from this deep silence, with the manner in which it is described. Attaining this perspective, we arrive at the point of inwardly extinguishing this whole panoramic life tableau that we first conjured forth. We do so not only in respect of isolated thought pictures, but for the whole of our earthly life in its inward form. This means that in a sense we extinguish ourselves as human being on earth. But by virtue of the fact that we have extinguished our earthly self, which is bound up with our physical human body, and have therefore come to an experience of the soul's deep silence, we also now experience what we were as human spirit soul before we descended from the world of spirit. And in the same way as our physical body was the vehicle for relating to our physical surroundings, this experience of our existence in the world of spirit soul enables us to perceive how in pre-birth life we were surrounded by spirit soul beings and were ourselves a spirit soul being of the same kind. We enter that world of spirit from which we descended to life on earth and apprehend it fully. It is noticeable that in ordinary life people are only concerned with the soul's eternal existence in one direction, that of the immortality of the soul after death. But this has another aspect, which an older idiom had a word for, though we have lost it nowadays. The soul's eternal existence does not only stretch forward as its immortality, but reaches back to, in quotes, unbornhood. Together, unbornhood and immortality compose the full scope of the eternal soul. Rather than indulging metaphysical speculation, we can come to an experience of the eternal nature of the human soul through the soul's deep silence, which has always been eternal and existed spiritually before we descended to earthly existence. And what remains eternal as we live our life in a physical human body between birth and death. But this eternal character of the soul is something we can approach only gradually, even in anthroposophic spiritual research. As the third stage of development, I must speak of something that may elicit some irritation and even mockery from those in the audience who come furnished with customary scientific ideas. I can very well understand such a reaction, as indeed I can understand all opposition to anthroposophy. But something we already possess in ordinary life can be developed further into a higher power of perception. 
in the same way that our childhood powers have developed further into our adult capacities. And this is the power of love. Love is something quite different when bound up with the human body as it surrenders to passions expressed in love than it is when, in the way I have described, the physical ego and even the earthly I, capital, we know between birth and death, has been cast off. When we depart from physical existence into the condition in which we encounter pure spirit, when in this process we develop powers of love, of complete surrender, the experience we have had of perceiving and experiencing what we were in the pre-birth condition is transformed into knowledge. We learn what it means to experience the reality of full consciousness outside the body, and in surrendering ourselves to this spiritual experience, our I is given back to us again in a new way. The I that lives in self-seeking egoity here in earthly life, which is then overcome by acquiring the self-knowledge that can be gained when this I is twice extinguished, thus develops love in the full meaning of the word at a soul-spiritual level. And then something approaches us that initially appears to us as foreign to ourselves, someone quite different from us. Striving for this experience, we will assuredly not have it. We should strive, rather, for the kind of love I have described. And then, because we are now able to depart from ourselves entirely, we meet what we are ourselves, but as someone quite different. And only then do we see the nature of this self in a past life that we lived before this present life. Only then do we see how the I was present in a former stage of existence on the earth, if we are able to feel, as it were, a second human being within us through enhanced, intensified love. Then we gaze back to a certain point of evolutionary time when the I began to be an I when our recurring lives on earth began. But of this I cannot now speak. All I can say is that we can gaze back upon a sequence of lives on earth, composing the full scope of our human life, between which lie periods of life in pre-birth or post-mortem existence, between death and a new birth. This is one thing we experience of the soul's eternal and immortal nature, by working our way through to spiritual perception. The other, gained by love intensified into a power of knowledge, is an experience of the higher human being outside of the physical body. And what we further recognize and perceive is that this being is without body. We perceive how the body becomes a corpse at death, how this body falls away as we pass on into life after death. In the same way that we gained vision of our pre-birth life, of our unbornhood, so now we look into immortality, into life after death. The moral impulses we acquired in our earthly life, which we bear with us through the gate of death, and the way in which we prepare a new earthly existence in communion with the world of spirit, so as to descend again to birth on earth, now rises vividly before the soul, which has begun in intellectual humility, 
but has also succeeded in harboring a certain trust in inward human powers. This leads knowledge into the realm of life that lies so close to human longings and needs. We look at those whom we have come to love, whom ties of blood or soul connections have brought close to us. We think of the threshold of death and ask, what will become of the bonds that blood has woven and the bonds that soul and spirit have woven when we have passed through death's portal? Once we have this vision I described, this perception, we know that the outward corporeal sheath falls away at death from our eternal being and that we rise into the spiritual world by laws and powers that we brought down to earth at birth and with which we lived our physical life on earth. We learn that what we have in common with others, as ties of blood, as bonds of friendship, as bonds of love, falls away, too, like the human physical body itself. And yet we know with true knowledge that we encounter again the souls with whom we had these ties in the pure community of the world of spirit, because physical hindrances no longer exist there. In this way, and not out of mere curiosity, we gain true knowledge of human dignity and the destiny of souls. And something else becomes true knowledge for us. In dream, the reality of the outward physical world vanishes for us because the will is not incorporated in the physical body, not engaged. In dream, we think the picture world we see is reality, in the same way, before we come to the soul's deep silence and waken to the life of the spirit, we regard much as reality. But on awakening to conscious spiritual life, after we make that second transition, when we find that the physical reality we experience in waking life appears as mere dreaming, then much that was a reality for us in physical bodily life appears as a dream too from a higher perspective. Just as dream reality is superseded by physically perceptible reality, so what we experience in physical life as moral or religious people is superseded by our second awakening. And then we realize what someone like Knebu meant, Goethe's friend, who said this when he was an old man, quote, Once you've grown old, you find that significant events in your life now appear as if they had been prepared long before. It seems that you yourself arranged everything that affected or influenced you as man or youth. And all the paths you chose as a youth seem to point toward each significant experience. Close quote. This idea in still more developed form is proven true if we imbue it with the insights we gain in the ways I have described. It becomes evident that this is indeed what happens in life. We experience something incisive. We are led to someone with whom we will walk a shared path throughout our lives. And we look at what led us to this person. The steps that led us to them have arisen from a longing to experience precisely what we can experience with them. In this experience we come to our goal, which rightly accords with a longing of the soul, a probation of the soul. What lives in us, through which we conjure our own destiny, as if out of ourselves, 
must be connected with the insight into past earthly lives, when we were a person of such or such a moral stance. And so we can see that what we now do in life instinctively, seemingly by chance, is connected by destiny to what we were and how we lived in a previous life. This may seem a devastating thought, but as little as our freedom, dignity or full responsibility is affected by whether we have blonde hair or black, blue eyes or brown, spindly or thick-set hands, so little is our freedom and responsibility impaired by knowing that the soul configures us and that we must craft our destiny in life as free human beings upon destined foundations. But life becomes comprehensible when we are imbued with this idea of destiny, which is entirely reconcilable with freedom, that life is not random, but that we feel ourselves engaged both in the world of natural necessity and in the world of a higher spirituality, in which is rooted our higher being, with the moral powers with which destiny invests us. Such an insight leads us from external life toward the soul's immortality. But there's a further possible objection. Yes, perhaps certain spiritual investigators can discern these things, but what does it signify for ordinary people? Well, it signifies exactly as much as an artist's work signifies for someone who is not a painter. It would be sad if everyone had to be a painter in order to appreciate a work of art. One needs only a certain healthy sensibility to experience the quality of an artwork and only healthy human common sense to experience what the spiritual investigator describes. But if we place the sadly numerous preconceptions in our own path as hindrances, then instead of revealing a whole world to us, the pictures conjured by the anthroposophic spiritual investigator will appear to us as random blobs of paint, Even for those whose lives run in a straightforward, ordinary fashion, this world is fully comprehensible from accounts given by the anthroposophic investigator. And by drawing on books such as titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, people can always also embark on the path of spiritual research without altering their outward lives and check what the spiritual investigator is saying to see whether he is simply talking out of fantasy or whether his findings are firmly established, like mathematical judgments, like the results of measuring, counting, and weighing, and so on. This is what spiritual science wishes to introduce into modern human culture, inevitably seeing it as meeting the inmost needs of numerous people. You see, today many people, as a result of their education, and the prevailing scientific paradigm have an unconscious yearning to know something, to have a real experience of matters very close to the human heart. I have spoken of only one of these today, namely the soul's immortality and all that relates to this. But in consequence, something is introduced into the world which is very like the Copernican worldview when it was introduced into a culture wedded to an older outlook. People will reject it as idiocy, but slowly it will come to seem self-evident. The Copernican worldview took a long time to be accepted, 
Anthroposophy can wait. Yet it has a cultural obligation to state that ordinary science, whose methods are held to be sacrosanct, has developed a psychology based on external investigations, using external means of counting, computation, and analysis that is devoid of soul. Science even considers this to be an ideal state of affairs. Anthroposophy does not dispute the justification for such methods, founded on the scientific outlook, but it seeks to add to it a fully developed understanding of the inmost nature of the human soul, of what is soul-spiritual in the whole world, the eternal life that exists in the whole cosmos, so that human beings can discern themselves as eternal too, immortal, and inwardly connected with the eternal in the cosmos. Thus, anthroposophy seeks to offer insight into our life at present and in the coming future, and by so doing to meet a need of our time, adding to modern soul-devoid psychology a living psychology elicited from the human soul itself, a psychology founded on a world outlook pervaded and imbued with soul, with spirit. It is this that will be needed increasingly. The end of Lecture 7